the finale on the first round for Vince Carter. Oh, it's over! It's over, ladies and gentlemen! Richard Lewis playing off the ball. Lewis gets it to LeBron for three for the win. Yes! LeBron James Harden out front. Shot clock is down to four. Harden, the drive. Harden in the hoop. Oh, he's got it! James Harden is smoking hot. Kevin Brown lost it. Here comes McGrady. No turnabout commanded. McGrady for the win. Yes! 1.7 to go. San Antonio with no turnabout. Here's Parker. Welcome inside to episode seven of the Flow House Hoops podcast. I'm Adam Housen, joined by my partner, as always, Miguel Flores. And today we have a special guest. He's a senior analyst at NBA TV, where he spent over 10 years. He authors the Hang Time blog on NBA.com, including one of my favorite pieces to check in on throughout the season, the Kia MVP ladder. He also hosts the Hang Time podcast, where you can get on NBA.com as well. Uh, more recent guests include Bill Walton, Karan Butler, and Cheryl Swoop. Some really, really good stuff there for you guys to check out when you're not listening to us, of course. We welcome in Sekou Smith to the podcast. Sekou, man, how are you? I'm good, man. Um, I apologize for the uh, natty attire. I've been rotating white tees and black tees and shorts for the last month, so um, kind of hard to get me to put on some real clothes. <laughs> <laughs> I was going to ask you, how many NBA reruns and highlights can one man watch, man? Dude, I, you know what? This, this has been strange, obviously, um, and I feel kind of small even kicking and screaming about not having live sports on right now. But it has given me an opportunity to kind of dig into the vault a little bit and um, and appreciate games I covered, you know, 20 years ago and stuff that, that was going even before I started covering the league. So it has been the silver lining, I guess you could say, has been that you get a chance to reconnect with some stuff you may not have you know, really been up on um, when you're watching the game currently and watching games every night and kind of going through the, the grind of a regular season. Um, I, I want NBA basketball live, NBA basketball back as bad as anyone, but this has been a really nice opportunity to kind of reflect a little bit. It definitely has. And, and you brought up, you know, we all want NBA basketball back as soon as possible, but obviously at the safety comes first for everyone. You know, what have you been hearing? I know there's been some dates thrown out with Adam Silver saying they got to play, you know, no later than Labor Day. They want to have this in by. What have you been hearing around the league and what are just kind of players' perceptions? Do they want to continue with the season or is everyone just kind of too afraid of, you know, what's going on that they just, they're pretty much at ease if they do have to cancel this? I've, I've not spoken to anyone who doesn't want to continue the season wherever we can pick it up. Um, that's players, coaches, executives, um, people that work for the networks. Every single person I've talked to wants to see the, you know, some kind of closure to the season, whether it's an abbreviated playoffs, whatever they want to see it. Um, the, the reaction that I've gotten from a lot of players is that, it's giving them a chance to pause. This is normally a time when they're going and going and going, you know, wrapping up a regular season for some people, kind of drafting, you know, into a playoffs for a lot of other guys. Um, and it's hard. It's hard to get out of that box when you've been doing it for so long. We're not just talking about the NBA season. If you think about where the basketball calendar is, high school kids are finishing state championships. College kids are getting ready for tournaments. 
then the NBA players are getting ready for the play. I mean, there's this kind of a natural progression to the basketball calendar that's always going on. Um, the spring basketball circuit that normally is cranking up now for young kids has come to a halt. I mean, that entire basketball ecosystem has has been, you know, drained. I mean, it's had the air sucked out of it. And that's a tough thing for everybody. Um, but but everybody is in the same situation. It's not like it's going one way on the West Coast and some different on the East Coast or something different on the other side of the world. Everybody stopped. It's, it stopped everywhere. So it's forced everybody into a different pattern um, in terms of trying to figure out what to do in the middle of April. Yeah, and I think that's the big thing that, that you hit on right there. Everything's going to be relative for every single, you know, basketball party involved in this thing. There's been some conversation about – some players and teams coming back a little bit rusty. Um, but it's going to be the same situation for everybody if and when they do. Um, Sekou, I do think that we'd be selling our listeners short, though, if we didn't ask you, do you have any sort of hunch or prediction on when we might see basketball again? You know, my only, my only hunch, and it's obviously I'm speaking for myself personally, not for the league or NBA TV or NBA.com or anybody else. I'm just, I'm just assuming that if we get into late June, um, there would have to be some sort of date, you know, July 1st, somewhere around there. Think about when summer league starts, you know, after the 4th of July. Like, right. we'd have to be in that realm somewhere to be able to crank back up. I don't know what f- form or fashion it would be, um, but I just think there's way too many variables to, to calculate right now. Dude, think about three weeks ago, they, they said you shouldn't wear masks when you go out. And today my wife and I went for a walk and we were both wearing doubled up black masks, you know, to walk um, in our neighborhood. I mean, it's just everything is changing so rapidly that you don't really know for sure how to project. And that's one of the things, I, you know, Adam Silver was smart to say, hey, we're not going to even think about anything until May 1st. Then we'll start weighing options because you need to give it time for the science to be, you know, flushed out and then for everybody to catch up to whatever the latest science is that day really not even that week but that day and the cliche i think we keep hearing is that the virus is going to set the date but it is kind of the best one i've heard out there um you mentioned that you've had a lot of downtime and you've kind of been using that to your advantage to watch some old games um you did a piece a couple weeks ago that's on nba.com on your hang time blog uh called 20 must see games on nba league pass you did your top 10 games from this season and then you did 10 classics that are specific to NBA League Pass. I, was, I just wanted to ask you, a couple of the, the games you had were the Luel Cinder debut, Kobe's 81-point game, uh, the Jordan shot in 1989. I wanted to ask you as a spectator, if you could have been at any one of those classic yeah, games. That's a great question. Um, I would have I killed to be at the, any game Jordan played. Um, and I wasn't <laughs> even a huge Jordan guy when I was coming up like I you know I'm I'm from Grand Rapids Michigan so I grew up on the you know the eastern shadow of Jordan Mania where we weren't necessarily that excited he vanquished my my Lakers and Magic Mm -hmm. and then he went through my Pistons so I wasn't exactly fired up (laughs) about Jordan taking over the basketball world at the time but in in hindsight and you almost take it for granted you know how great he was um and what it was like to be in the building when he was playing. You know, I got a chance to cover the league when he was Washington Wizards, Michael Jordan. So I missed out on covering Bulls, Michael Jordan, which is one of my great regrets of not being born sooner, I guess. Um, 
How much you could do about that. <laughs> exactly. But, I mean, I really – I think any Jordan game would have been spectacular. And for me, Lou Elsinder slash Kareem Abdul-Jabbar is the greatest player in basketball history in my, my estimation when you go cradle to the grave. Right. From the moment we saw him on the, on the basketball stage until the day he hung it up, nobody has had a career like that. Think about the winning he's done right. in the course of life. So if I would have gotten a chance to see him as a young player in his prime, like my dad is in that same age range. He remembers seeing Kareem when he was Luel Cinder. And to hear him talk about how great Kareem was back then and, that, and how unbelievably dominant he was, just a shot that nobody could stop. Think about his time at UCLA when he was physically able to run and jump higher than anybody else on planet Earth. Right. I would have loved to have been in the building, like in my normal seat on press row, watching Lou Elson. That would, that would be crazy. I mean, I watched Kobe's entire career. Um, you know, I covered the league for most of his entire career. Uh, I do, you know, anybody more recent, I have that frame of reference. For Kareem, though, I've, I've only known him, seen him, interviewed him, talked to him as an older man. So I would have loved to see what he was like in his 20s, in his early 20s and in his prime. Yeah, Jordan and Kareem are two guys that, you know, a while back we did kind of like our top five all-time players. And, you know, when everyone talks about top best player of all time, it's always LeBron Jordan, LeBron Jordan. But, I mean, Kareem is a guy that kind of always gets left out of the conversation. I mean, even Kareem himself says that he feels he's the best player, you know, because of what he did and, and how long he did it. People forget you know, I saw they've been doing debates on sports shows as far as, you know, who's the greatest college player ever and fans voted on Michael Jordan, which, and I love Michael Jordan. I'm a Michael Jordan guy, but even I can say, you know, how can you surpass a guy, a Kareem who won what three national titles. And he was from the moment he got into college, he was dominating the game. When he was on the freshman team at UCLA, when you couldn't play varsity, I mean, they, they wiped the floor with UCLA's varsity. He lost two games. I mean, I'm, I don't have to litigate Kareem's case. Um, but you're right. I mean, it's just one of those things where if you, if you haven't really dug in and studied the game, it, it becomes a little wacky. Like, my youngest son has just turned 18. And um, great kid, loves basketball. Comes down the stairs and tells me what's going on in basketball. Right. Like, that kind of cat. Um, and he was watching Zion and he was just talking about Zion one day. And he's like, man, Zion's got to be the best rookie of all time. And I, I told him, I said, well, yeah, except for when Will Chamberlain averaged like 37 <laughs> points and 24 rebounds a game, his rookie season, you know, and it's like to him, that sounds like something you read in the back of a history book. It's yeah. so long ago. To me, it's oh, yeah. something my dad talked about, but I've never seen, but understanding the evolution of basketball over the last 70 years, are you, are you crazy? Could you imagine a dude averaging 37 and 24 his rookie season right. in your it's lifetime? A, like, we'd have, been, we'd have been diving out of windows. We'd have been going crazy. One more question on that, too. Why is it that the big man is a little bit disregarded, left out when these, you know, top fives, top tens come out? Why do you think that is? Is it because there's no flash and we're just kind of used to in, in the modern era, younger players below the rim dominating the game? What, what, why could that be? It's, I think it's mainly because – the game has shifted from a big man dominated game where you throw the ball, you know, first rule of basketball. Right. When I was a kid was you dribble the ball off the floor and throw it into the post. Right. And you play inside out. Um, that has changed 
completely. It's flipped. Now we have dominant ball handlers, you know, shot creators and, and guys who are running the point, like running the show, who are the most dominant players. And, you know, with this current era of basketball, it actually started with Magic. Right. Over. Like, yeah. Ma- Magic just kind of flipped it upside down because he was 6'9". Was, yeah. Um, but that's the era we've been in since Magic hit the scene. It just took it a little longer for everybody else in the league, I think, to follow the trend. And this it's a, it's a copycat league. It's a trend league. Um, if I'd have told you 15 years ago, everybody was going to be playing three-point shooting and spacing the floor, you looked at me and laughed because nobody played like that 15 years ago. Now everybody plays like that. Switching gears into today's NBA, the kind of big news that have been going on, and I'm a big Chicago Bulls fan, you know, that's my team. And they finally have kind of Taking that leap, they're getting rid of the old regime, that old type of school, the way they ran the organization. They have finally come to accept that that has not worked anymore. And then John Paxson taking a back seat. And now you're bringing in a new guy like Arturis Cardenas Sovas, I believe I'm pronouncing it correct, who's the new executive VP of basketball ops. You know, first off, when he was hired, what was your initial impression? What have you heard about Cardenas Sovas? What is what does he bring to the Bulls? Fresh eyes mainly, um, and I've known him for a long time. Know who he is. I, uh, you know, I understand the work he did in Denver. Um, you're bringing in a guy with a great eye for talent. He'll have connections overseas that will be beneficial. I'm assuming for the Bulls as he implements whatever plan he's going to. Um, and when I look at teams when they hire somebody, I, what I look at is where's your most recent spot. And what was your responsibility while you were there? Um, and if team building and roster building was his focus in Denver, everybody in Chicago should be really excited because that's one of the better built up and coming teams. When you look at the combination of talent that they've acquired, drafted, cultivated, um, you know, pieced together, they've done a fantastic job. Um, you know, if you look at the Bulls roster, they got talented players. Like, I'm sure like you guys, I look at them and go, why in the world are they this bad? They've got players who are good, they're talented. But if they don't fit, it, you know, it doesn't matter how much talent you have. So I think, you know, Karnispis is coming into um, some fresh eyeballs on what you have so you can make the right kind of decisions going forward to figure out what you need to take that next step. The Bulls have done this for a long time, guys. You know that. Um, they they s- stayed the course is, is the term I like to use when somebody's really stubborn in this league. They stayed the course a lot longer than their fans would have liked. And then conventional wisdom suggested they should, you know, being stubborn. When you walk into that building, you still have people there who remember the glory days. So they're always thinking in the back of their mind, well, we've done this before. We can get this back. But, man, that was, that was a lifetime ago. That, yeah. was an, that was an NBA lifetime or two ago. And you you got to update your thinking at some point. You and Michael Jordan's not walking through that some, door no more. Oh, he might walk through the door. He's just not wearing 23 or 45. <laughs> <laughs> you know, and you brought up a good point. They do have a lot of really nice young pieces. And, you know, you talk about Zach, who's – I think he's – yeah, I love. Him. I think he's a guy that is everything you want to build a franchise around. You know, he's 
smart. He's likable. He's got some charisma. He's talented. He works know, his just, ass off. I yep. mean, he works like crazy on his game, which think about it. There was a time when you would be worried about a franchise guy or your highest paid player or your marquee guy. Is he going to be a hard, like, is he a hard worker or not? Now, I don't – name me a team whose best player doesn't bust his butt to be great. I mean, I, I couldn't find one. All these guys work. Um, all these guys are diligent about how they go about their business. You know what the difference is now that, that we don't kind of factor into this is your front office has to be shrewd. They have to, there has to be some serious team building going on. Like, there has to be a really – good brain trust of people to piece together the right players to, to see if they can make it work. I think the jury is still out um, on what this new regime does. The point is that the Bulls have already won. They've taken a massive step in the right direction. And, you know, they're hoping with this teardown that everything's going to kind of get back up to, to where it used to be. But my question to you is, what about the GM? I mean, there's been some names thrown out here. Do you like any of these names, or do you have any other suggestions on who you think maybe they should hire? I like some of the names, actually. There's been some really smart people whose names have come up. Um, I'm, I'm biased because I know most of them, so I've got relationships with them. I'd hate to push one over the other, but I, I really like the idea of Wes Wilcox getting another opportunity in a place like Chicago. A guy who, you know, sometimes when you get you – get, run out of one place, it forces you to kind of go back into your bag and kind of start from scratch in terms of how you plot a course and how you build relationships. And there's a humbling that goes on when you fail in this league. I need, if, I, if I'm the Bulls, as much as I want to bring in guys who have had big success, my GM needs to be a guy who feels the pressure of having failed previously so he guards against the things that might come at him now in this new job. So someone like Nazi Muhammad or Michael Finley might not be a good idea, in your opinion, like someone that doesn't have any experience at the position? They could be really good choices. Um, but I think there's a certain sense of pressure that comes with having failed before in that job that, that helps you avoid some of the pitfalls that you would step into if you were a first-timer or if you haven't had that, that experience calling shots. One thing to be in the room and to be suggesting stuff. It's another thing when the decision is on, on your shoulders, and I think you got to be mindful of that. They got Zach in marketing right now. They already have two guys we know. I think Wendell Carter should be another one of those pieces. Yep. So, like, they have the players already there. Now it's a matter of developing them and then finding the right pieces to go around. One of the things that I loved about, you know, when Arturis was hired and he came in is that – he was already making moves. He, he had a plan. I love how Michael Reinsdorf did not decide to wait. You know, he gave, he wanted to move on this quickly and wanted to give whoever he hired a chance to really evaluate things quickly and have enough time to evaluate the roster and not wait till the end of the season because we don't know when that will be. And so Arturis came in and he hired J.J. Polk, an assistant GM right away from the Pelicans, hired Pat Connolly, who is now the director of player personnel for the Bulls. He grabbed him from along in Denver. And now GM is that next tier that he's looking to conquer. But after the GM, he, you've heard, you know, the, the cries for Jim Boylan to be out as head coach. Is there any chance that Boylan stays, you know, here under the new regime i i don't see how that's possible yeah i think i would think that'd be difficult and um 
and Boylan's a, a, a East Grand Rapids, Michigan native himself. So shout out to my, my homeboy, <laughs> Jim Boylan. Um, but, you know, he, he was asked to come in and do a very difficult job. You know, he's asked to come in and clean up somebody else's mess. Like if I walk through my door at night and somebody else has been, you know, rampaging through my house and then it's like, hey, here you, here's the keys. Now you go in there and clean it up in the next 20 minutes, you know, make it pretty. It's like, that's, that's a difficult job. Um, I happen to think that the most important position in any staff in the league right now, one is whoever your player development coach is, like whoever's the head of your player development component has to be first class. He's got to be a, basically a Navy SEAL slash ninja. He's got he's to be able to do so many things with, with, with your roster to get guys in a position. And really, if you think about a place like Denver, their success, the unsung heroes are their player development coaches you know, led by John Beckett, who's, who's really good at his job, who's, who's rooted in some really sturdy stuff in this league. So I've been saying this for 20 years, and I learned this being on the road, traveling with advanced scouts and player personnel guys. Is your player personnel director is the one guy in your organization who has to know the league inside out, front to back, roster to roster in ways that no one else has. He's got to know who the eighth guy is on some bench somewhere who's ready for that next step, who's ready to be a number five guy on some team somewhere. And you got to be able to go out and get him and put him on your team and watch him flourish. Um, and that, if you, if you have those two positions locked down and solidified, then you've got a chance to do what the Bulls are trying to do, which is take an, an already organic group of guys and grow them to whatever their next step is. Are these guys the player development guy and the player personnel guy? Are these the guys that are getting their hands dirty in the trenches, like on the court and practice with the players? Or are these more suit and tie guys? No, they're actually more road trip guys. Okay. They're, they're suitcase guys because they're the guys that are with your team all the time. So okay. He's got to have a backpack basically and to be working with a guy on an off day when, you know, when you everybody gets a day off and, and guys are going in the gym to get shots or to work on their games, your player development guy is the one who's there. Or in the off season – when everybody's kind of scattered to the wind and the head coach is not going to visit with the guy on the other side of the world. Right. It's the player development guy who's showing up and making sure you're doing what you're supposed to be doing. The player personnel guy is the, is the one guy in the organization who can walk into any gym around the world and everybody knows who he is. And he knows the players on the floor, what they're capable of, who can and cannot play. Because we get this idea that, you know, NBA players get evaluated once they get to college or the league. That's not been true in my time covering basketball. And I covered high schools and college before I started covering the NBA, which I've been doing for 20 years now. The best basketball dudes I know are the ones who know the game from the top all the way down to the grassroots. And if you have people that understand the growth of players and how to look at a guy and judge what kind of maturity level he has at a young age and whether or not that translates. Those are the guys who are most beneficial to you as, a, as an NBA organization because they have that institutional knowledge of not just the game, but of the personnel. Now, eventually, you know, someone's going to have to coach this young team. Someone's going to have to be the face, the head coach. And, and if Jim Boylan, if he stays, um, that would be an interesting decision. But if he does, you know, they part ways and Arturis wants to bring in his own guy who are some of the names you know I've been on Twitter I've 
listen to, you know, 670 The Score. A lot of the Chicago media names are being thrown out there. And there's a lot of quality names out on the market, coaching market right now. You got guys like Kenny Atkinson who, you know, take that team from the ground up and make them a playoff team. And then you got a Dave Yeager who the reason why – from what I heard and from stories of why he got fired was he wanted to draft Luca number one. <laughs> and that didn't, that, that's not a bad reason to be fired. Um, and then you, you've heard the old face, you know, Tom Thibodeau, his name is being thrown out. Could he come back and reconcile things with the bulls? Adrian Griffin, uh, a young guy who's seems that he's always on coaching list, hasn't gotten that opportunity. He seems poised to kind of make that jump to head coach. Who's the guy you like? Who's someone that you think with this roster, with Levine, Laurie, Wendell, Kobe, can really get the best and most out of them? Uh, you know, I'd love to see a guy like David Vanderpool get a job like that. Um, you know, because if you look at the league and kind of if you don't bring in an established coach who comes in with kind of a blanket way of doing business, then I want some dude kind of like what Lloyd Pierce has done in Atlanta, uh, what Taylor Jenkins has done in Memphis. Mm-hmm. Um, I need a young guy who's willing to come in and absorb not only how the game plays and operates now, but also with an eye towards whatever the future is, like a guy with a vision about how he wants to play. The, the, the one thing I don't love about the coaching profession in, in any professional sport is the quickness, a quick reaction by organizations to go, well, this guy's had this success here. Let's bring him to our place and see if we can't get the best out of him here. Like, I understand why they do it, because that's kind of a corporate way of evaluating that part of the business. But I think if you look at the – think about the most wildly successful things in any business that you can think of in your lifetime. Nine times out of ten, it's something you've never heard of. Like, the Coke didn't invent the newest drink out there. You know, like, somebody else – showed up with something that Coke incorporated. Like, so big corporations usually absorb something, you know, uh, somebody else's bright idea. I think coaching is like that. There are bright coaches everywhere. Like if you could explain to me why Tim Gergrich hasn't been a head coach 10 times over given his work in this league, I I would love to hear it. You know, so there's, it's not like an older veteran coach doesn't know what he's doing or doesn't have a feel when you're talking about uh, a leader of people a guy who could be the face of your organization, as you mentioned, and kind of be the guy who runs the show and convinces his team to come together. I don't think you can put a fence around how you select that guy. I think it needs to be a wide open landscape and you figure out who's the right guy for your team. Like who fits in your market, who has synergy with your GM and can connect and reach the players you have to get them to play at their best. When Vanderpool left uh, Portland, how torn up Damian Lillard and CJ McCollum were, and they were both pretty vocal about that. Sekou, that's a name, to be honest, that I don't think – I'm not sure about you, Miguel. I don't want to speak for you, but I haven't heard that name thrown around yet. I think we need a uh, potential replacement, <laughs> top five Jim Boylan replacement list from you. I think that would be, uh, be pretty well in the hang time blog, man. But um, I wanted to talk about Chicago as a free agent destination because they've struck out pretty big in the last – decade i'd say uh there's a rich basketball tradition here in our city uh great fan base it looks like ownership it looks like michael is trying to take the helm of ownership now and push this franchise in the right direction i think in the last 10 years gasol they just signed thaddeus young carlos boozer they haven't really got that big ticket free agent 
my belief is that players today want to go to a winning team and a winning culture because they can, they can make their money anywhere. It seems just about what do you think it's going to take for them to, to land a big ticket free agent? It's tough. I mean, I think what has to be in place is the right kind of infrastructure. And then two selling points y'all is going to have, you know, it's because as you mentioned, you guys are getting paid whatever market they're in. So it's not just a dollar figure anymore. You got to find guys who want to be in certain markets. And yeah, like free agents love LA. They love, you know, the hot cities, you know, Miami, but then there are places where the basketball tradition is rich and they've got a way of doing business that never make those lists. San Antonio, nobody, you never hear about free agents clamoring to go to San Antonio. And that's not a knock on San Antonio or the Spurs. I happen to think both the organization and the city, there's nothing wrong with them. Great places. Um, Chicago's big thing is they have to live down the recent history. Somebody has to come there or they have to have somebody in there already who can kind of face down the last 20 years, the, the post-Jordan era, the, and more recently, the fallout from Derrick Rose's time, you know, his departure from the Bulls. I don't think we give enough credit to the fact that the way Derrick Rose exited town scarred that organization to a lot of players in this league. You know, they saw the way he was treated, you know, by whoever. I don't, I'm not here to point fingers at blame, but it didn't end pretty for a guy who was as beloved as a hometown kid coming to play for us, you know, the team he grew up watching. Is anybody I can remember in recent memory other than LeBron? Um, so there's some, there's some scar tissue that the Bulls organization has to live down in order to get in the mix of free agency like you're talking. And then they got – they need Zach and marketing and Wendell Cardinals. They got to have a season that kind of raises eyebrow so that when that next Jimmy Butler or whatever free agent who's looking to do something other than follow whatever the trend is says, you know what, I'm going to, I'm going to go to Chicago instead of going to Brooklyn or wherever else might be a theoretical hotspot. How big do you think this kind of, you know, revamping the Chicago Bulls image, you know, one – you have gotten rid of the old regime. You're bringing in, a, a, you know, a lot of new bright minds, guys that players know all around the league. That's one aspect of it. And then during this dead time, all the NBA is going to be glued to this last dance doc, and it's going to be about the Bulls. It's, it's, it's literally they're going to be the center stage. And granted, yes, it's through Michael Jordan and the glory days, but – do you think that's going to have any impact on guys, you know, watching like, man, Chicago at one point was just the Mecca of basketball, the center of everything. Chicago's the number three market in the country. It's, it's, we saw what they did during all-star weekend and how great of a all-star weekend it was for, for players and everyone. Do you think that also is just going to kind of lift kind of players and, you know, like, okay, they got rid of, you know, like you said, the scar tissue, of the guys that were at the forefront of that and they're bringing in new minds. And now you see this doc on top of it. It's just kind of all coming together. I think the timing is just perfect for what's happening with the bulls right now. Yeah. I mean, I don't know. I mean, you got such a captive audience, so I think it could have an impact, but what you have to have is somebody in the organization. I think you got a G, you know, a team president or a VP of basketball who's ready to do it is you got to, it's a relationship business. So you not only have to have the right people in place, but they have to have the right relationships to make things happen. If someone had told you four years ago that Sean Marks would be running a team and he'd be the guy to convince 
Kevin Durant and Kyrie Irving, you'd have been like, what? Like, what's the connection? Like, what? Yeah. So it, it's something that evolves. Um, but you have to have somebody with the right relationships. And this has become, I guess, since 2009 when, or 2008 even, um, when players started making their own moves in terms of free agency and deciding, you know, I'm going to go play with my boys. Or I'm going to play with guys I know. You know, the the Heat doing it in every other super team iteration we've seen since then, is, in this era at least, is born out of those Celtics teams. And it all started with a simple pre-existing relationship between Danny Ainge and Kevin McHale. So you start thinking about it. What, is it, what does it take to move the league, you know, to shift the power like that? And it usually takes a really good foundational relationship between two guys in decision-making positions, whether that's players or front office guys, owners, I don't think will ever be, there's, there's 30 teams in this league. So there's 30 independent outfits who are trying to get the same goal. I have a very hard time ever seeing two owners being the guys who would broker that kind of change in the league. It's going to have to start at a player level or a front office level, some relationship somewhere in your in your DNA as an organization to help you make something like that happen. It's been nothing short of a waterfall of good press for the Chicago Bulls the last two weeks. I think just the timing, I don't know if this was a PR stunt, um, <laughs> but I think you're going to start to see, and I've mentioned this on, on some previous podcasts, you're going to start to see a trend here with other teams making changes in their front office and kind of shuffling the deck around. Um, we wanted to talk to you about one other thing, too. Miguel and I brought up this conversation last week of weighted championships. Now, we were doing our all-decade list. We were doing it collaboratively, so we kind of came to a halt at one player. So we agreed on about eight guys, and then Dirk Nowitzki came up. Miguel was arguing more so for the sake of you know impact on the game and winning and championships, whereas I was looking at longevity, durability, putting together a good stretch of 10 years. We look at some championships that some players have led their teams to, like Dirk, like Kawhi with Toronto, Hakeem with Houston, Wade in 06. Maybe you can argue Duncan in, in 1999. In your eyes, do certain championships by finals MVP winning players carry more weight than others? Oof, that's interesting. I, I never thought about it like that. Um, Dirk's, Dirk's championship to me was more of an exclamation point on an already ridiculously unbelievable Hall of Fame career. Like, if he didn't win a title, we, we would look at him differently. But because he did, it magnifies everything else he'd already done to me. Did the way that he did it and the players that he beat, does that put an extra exclamation point on that one for you? It doesn't because I, that's funny you mentioned it. That year for NBA.com, we, you know, every year at the playoffs, we pick a team, basically our, our writing staff, we used to deal, have a deal where everybody got assigned to a team and you rode them from day one all the way through. Dallas was my team that year. Wow. Uh, which is just coincidental. I had to. I had them that year. I thought they were done in Portland when Brandon Roy came off the bench and went nuclear. You just so you never know how a playoffs evolves. I, that same playoffs, it, nobody thought they were going to beat the Lakers, let alone sweep them and end a dynasty, basically end Kobe's second run. Um, but no, Dirk. That that group of players Dirk played with, and I tell people this all the time, Sean Marion was as 
cocky and good as he's ever been in his career on both ends of the floor during that series. Jason Kidd was unbelievable. J.J. Barea, unbelievable. And, and their glue guy, their best glue player, Karan Butler, didn't even get a chance to play in that playoffs. Like, they, if you look back at it, they, sh- they shouldn't have been a shocker to win a championship. We're, we really should have been asking ourselves, what took them so long and what took the stars so long to align for that group to get there? Because really, winning championships to me is planning, hard work, talent, grind, and all that stuff, as it is just pure serendipity. Like sometimes a championship team needs a four-leaf clover to like, you know, to fall in their path to get them on, on the road to winning a championship. The, the Warriors will tell you that. Like, they had all these different places where they could have went off the rails during some of their championship years, and somebody goes nuclear. Somebody on the other team gets hurt. Like, there has to be some circumstance involved. So, no, Dirk's, Dirk's title doesn't look different to me based on anything. That's, they earned their championship the hard way. Um, and I was there from the moment they started until they cut the net down and popped champagne. I, they earned it. It just it just didn't go along with the narrative we had that year, which was the Heat was was were crowned the minute they took the stage in Miami to win it, and that's not the way it played out. So all championships in your eyes are kind of created equal, or is there any other instance where you think that a guy basically just put the team on his back and and ran his way through a postseason? I think there are very few Danny Manning situations where, you know, where you have a great player ride his horse and then everybody else is running behind him. You know, it's, it's, it's just too difficult. To, yeah, it's too difficult to do in this league um, at, you know, at this level with, with a, with a seven game series, like you could be unbelievable for three or four games, but for you to be that kind of guy for seven games, you know, potentially yep. to have to do it. But if LeBron couldn't take a team, drag, literally drag a team, not just to the finals, but to a championship, like to win it all in the face of everything, it's not going to happen. And the year he did, that he was a part of that, Kyrie Irving hit the biggest shot in the game to win the game. Draymond Green had the biggest moment in the series when he got ejected and then got suspended for a game. There were other things other than just LeBron, LeBron being great, which he's, which he was d- throughout the duration of an eight-year run of going to the finals every year. Um, there was all these other things that had to happen for him to actually win that championship for, in Cleveland. And I think that's what you have to put in perspective because they're all their, their own singular experience. Like every year that someone's going to win a championship and there's going to be all this drama that goes on for that team to get there. You can ask anybody in Toronto. Think about Kawasha. I mean, come on, man. That's just that's ten what three times? Yep. Yeah, that's the that is the the fate of whatever the basketball gods. That's always going to be baked into the cake. Well, that, fast forwarding it to this year, if this season does continue and we end up with the champion, be it if we have three game series, first round, five, second round, and seven, you know, in the Western Eastern Conference finals in the title. Do you think people and the perception of whoever their champion is, is going to be a little bit different with the circumstances of everything that has kind of surrounded this season and, you know, stopping play for two, three months before we get back up and running again? Do you think that's going to be viewed um, 
first off from yourself as like an MBA writer, an MBA historian, is it going to be viewed differently? And then also by just the casual fan. I think looking back at anything that goes on, any high school senior, anybody who got married, any baby who was born, um, anything that happens during this COVID-19 global pandemic will have that coronavirus asterisk next to it. Now, do you remember, and this is not the same circumstance, but a similar thing in terms of a season being abbreviated and then a champion being crowned. When you start counting the Spurs championships, do you count the one they won during an abbreviated season? Like, oh, that's different than the other one they won. I don't. I mean, it's one of the many championships that that organization won. It just came under some adverse conditions, some, some different circumstances. I'm just saying, nobody, maybe at the moment we think of it like that, but yeah, but 100 like, years, 200 years from now, we're all <laughs> dust, right? They're all going to count for the same thing. You get the same trophy, yeah, no matter – like, you don't get a you don't get a, a Larry O'Brien trophy with, hat, like, a quarter of it shaved off. <laughs> <laughs> it's the same trophy. <laughs> well, we wanted to ask you one more. I know you only got so much time, and we appreciate uh, you for coming on today. Sure. If the season is resumed um, and we see a champion crown, who's that champion going to be? You know what, I, I had kind of gone through all these different ideas of who could win it all. And, I, you know, throughout the season, in, in my heart, I'm like, I'm rooting for Milwaukee because I root for – I want to I want to see a team in a place that hasn't experienced it get a chance to taste, you know, the champagne of winning the title. I, see, I watched it in Golden State the first year they won it, and I watched how important that was to people in the Bay Area who for 40 years dreamed about it. And it's like – Toronto, too, another one. Toronto is yeah. a great example of that, like just to watch the pride and the emotion that's involved. But if there's a team that can beat the Clippers or the Lakers in seven games, it's not the Clippers or the Lakers. I gotta, see, I haven't seen anybody that I look at and go, they can do this. Like I didn't see Toronto coming until basically they were winning the title. I was still sitting here going, <laughs> when KD popped his leg, I was like <laughs> – if KD comes back tonight and Clay's cooking like this, it's you know like so you so a lot of times you have to see it, but I don't I can't fathom a group the way they were playing that would be good enough, deep enough, bounced enough to go through either one of the Clippers or the Lakers with a title. To me, it's one of those two. Whoever takes care of the other in the Western Conference Finals is gonna be my pick to win it all. That that's how I, I saw it. And you know, before we let you go, we know you always do the top five key MVP MVP ladder, and I know saw you on NBA TV discussing your five. You still had Giannis winning the MVP. I know there was a lot of love for LeBron. He was coming on strong, well deserved. Everyone was, yeah, yeah, exactly. And everyone just loved the story. You know, thirty five years old, seventeen season. You know, how can you not want to root for LeBron to be MVP? You know, but you still had Giannis. What what was the reason? Did you think LeBron didn't do enough to overtake that kind no, of time? No, I just had? I have a respect for the duration of a regular season. Like I understand what it means, like to to get on the horse in training camp and play at that level all the way through the tape. And that like I don't think I don't know if people and as you've been around the league, so you don't understand this. I don't know if people fathom how hard it is to perform at that level. I mean, think about that. would be like being on a Broadway performer and you got to go out and smash it 82 times. Like you don't get a night off when you're 
talking about an MVP. That that dude's season has to be basically above and beyond what's already as good as it gets. And Giannis, what, he had three bad games, basically, where he didn't look like dominant Giannis? I have, I'd have a hard time knocking him out of that spot, knowing the work he put into it after winning it the year before and then coming back better, which is ridiculous foolishness that he would come back and actually be better than he was last year when he won his first MVP. Well, Sekou, man, we really appreciate the time. We'll let you get out of here. You guys, thank you so much for tuning in to episode seven, and uh, we'll talk to you guys soon.